Well, greetings. This is a another practice sermon for um, our church, and so it's a little again later on a Saturday than I preferred. But I did have a chance to look at this hard on Thursday night. I just was too late to record it. But anyway, um, the next message in our series on the Book of Matthew I've entitled "Will You Follow," and it's taken from the text in Matthew chapter eight, verses fourteen to twenty-two. In this particular story, we encounter um, some events that happened after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Remember, he came down and he met the the first story that Matthew tells us is about the leper who was uh, healed. He said, if you're willing, you can make me whole. And then the next story was the story about the centurion who had the servant who was very sick, and and he trusted God Um and said that you don't even need to come to my house, you can just say the word. And so he knew who Jesus was. And so after that event, we have this story that, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, goes like this. And verse 14, when Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, Many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. (coughs) Father in heaven, um, I just pray for your help as I try to um, share this message with my hearers here on the podcast, but uh, in the same way, I would ask for your blessing as we share it with the church tomorrow morning, uh, Lord willing, and just ask that we would understand what you want for us and and how we're going to um, follow the Lord Jesus with our whole heart. In his name we pray, amen. Have you ever um, ridden on a, a smallish boat? Um, it's kind of an interesting experience. You you get on the boat. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. When you first get on the boat, you you the boat will teeter, right? The boat is small enough to be aware of your weight, and so you change the center of gravity on the boat, and then it balances back out. So the whole thing is sort of a, a oh I don't know almost treacherous feeling. When you get in a boat, you're kind of abandoning the shore. You're abandoning security, and you're abandoning um, a sense of direction. Whoever's in charge of the boat gets to decide where it goes. If you're not the pilot of the boat, then you don't get to decide where you're going. So it's kind of an intriguing thing. And in this story, we see that jo- Jesus commanded that they cross the sea. And, um, and these events happened before that. And I guess just wanted to point that out to you. So the first thing I wanted to point out from this little story is that there are two kinds of healing. Two kinds of healing. 
When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. So there are two kinds of healings here that are going on. And so I just wanted to kind of compare and contrast these. First of all, one was a close friend, right? It was Peter's mother-in-law, and so it was in her home. And Jesus noticed that she was sick, and he went over and healed her, and, uh, and she got right up, and she waited on him. She served him with her strength that he gave her. The other uh, accounting of the healing is after the sun went down, all of these demon-possessed people came in all kinds of sickness. But, and now we have uh, complete strangers coming to Jesus and lining up outside the door, and it's um, it quite a bit different, really, than the healing of uh, Peter's mother-in-law. I, again, showing the contrast, right? Jesus is able to heal those who are close and those who are strangers. But then the next thing I notice is that the, um, the healing of uh, Peter's mother-in-law appears to be in the middle of the day and the sun is still up because the story tells us that later, after the sun went down, um, then many of these other people came. And so just, again, a contrast that... Uh, one kind of healing happened in broad daylight, and the other one happened after dark, after the world was more frightening and when people are more um, tired. I always used to, my mom always used to say, things look better in the morning. And so a lot of times the way that you feel and the way that you think in the evening or late at night is not a very good, accurate representation. But again, Jesus just, it just the story is showing these differences. But then thirdly, the thing that I notice between the two kinds of healing is that uh, his mother-in-law was more or less a mild sickness, right? It was not uh, necessarily life-threatening. It was just a fever. It was enough to keep her in bed, but we've all had those kinds of experiences. Uh, I guess you'd have to say it would be in the category of a, of a low-risk, low-danger illness. But the, the diseases that came after sundown were the most severe kinds of illnesses you could imagine. These are uh, the most horrific mental illnesses, the, the full-bore um, possession of the soul and the spirit by Satan, so demon possessions. And uh, in the accounts given through uh, Luke and Mark of this same night, uh, <clears throat> the, the demons were commanded by Jesus not to tell who he was, and they came out with shrieking. And so what was otherwise a calm afternoon with a, a woman in bed that Jesus heals and she gets up and serves him, uh, you know, it turns into quite the night. There's all kinds of strangers and there's the most severe shrieking and screaming, the most horrific. Uh, I wonder how many times the, the hair on the back of your neck would stand up from the fear of hearing another person come and the demon getting angry and and all those things. So I guess I just wanted to point out that there's a, a spectrum. Jesus handles it all. He handles the worst and the easiest. He handles close and far, and 24-7 he can do this work. So those are the things I first noticed about the story. The next thing I wanted to point out is that there was a scripture fulfilled. So again, Matthew's account of these events is a little bit different in a little bit different order than Luke or Mark's, but he, uh, Matthew draws this comparison, he draws it so that it would be fulfilling a scripture. And none of the other, uh, the other two gospel writers don't do that at this point. 
And Jesus is being pointed to here. Matthew wants us to understand who he is, and he quotes from a passage in Isaiah. So verse 17 of Matthew 8, this is what this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. And so this uh, at first blush just sounds like in passing, oh, that's cool, Jesus is a good healer. But you need to understand what he's quoting here and, and what, what, the, uh, what Matthew would want us to understand is what all else is in Isaiah 53 and what that means for us to understand who Jesus is. We need to point that he wasn't just a good healer. He was bearing in his body our infirmities and he bore our diseases. How does he mean by that? So let me read for you that entire passage. In Isaiah 53, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up, that he would be this Messiah figure. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. That's the part that Matthew quotes. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. So this person that's being described in Isaiah 53 is the one who took our sufferings, and yet when you look at it, it looks like God is punishing him. He's being afflicted by God, and He's the one that people are turning their faces from. He was despised because of his torment and the anguish. There was nothing about him that was attractive, and he's being completely rejected. Let's go on. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so God is crushing this Messiah, this Jesus on the cross, because of our sins. And his punishment is what's going to bring us peace. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So Jesus suffers quietly and, and under all of the oppression and the beatings and the scourging. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Who protected Jesus? Who was there to defend him? Not a single one. Probably the closest you'd get would be the thief on the cross who rebukes the other one for mocking. And then he says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And so he had, he was, uh, you know, he was going to be thrown out and killed with the wicked. He was uh, punished as with the thieves. And yet God intervened and had him buried in the tomb of the rich man. Um, and so, <clears throat> who was that rich man? It was uh, not Lazarus. I can't remember off the top of my head. I know Nicodemus was involved with it. Anyway, though he had done no violence, 
nor was any deceit in his mouth. mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So even though he was crushed, there is a future coming. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And so this righteous servant, he justifies many people. He makes it possible for us to be just, and he bears our sins, but he gets to be risen from the dead. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So <clears throat> the passage that um, Matthew is writing here for us, he, he talks about two kinds of healing, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law and the healing of all these uh, strangers who are demon-possessed. And then he says this was to fulfill the scripture. And then he says an order. He gives an order. He reports for us an order from Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. So this is a, an interesting thing. The, the people are crowding around. Jesus looks around and he says, let's get going. We're crossing the lake. Now this is a good place maybe to check the other accounts of Luke and Mark to, to see what they say, just to do some comparison. So let me read the Mark account first. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew. So Peter and Andrew are brothers. And Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So that's the story. This is this occasion when... Uh, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. And so this is a really, the whole town gathered. This, this is a big deal, and they all knew who he was. And then the account in Mark says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place. So Matthew doesn't include that part of the story, but Jesus went off to a solitary place and where he prayed. And then Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. There's, there's, this whole town is ready to go. Where are you at? And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. And so in the Mark account, he doesn't talk about going into the boat. He just says, it's time to go. we got to go somewhere else. And so he doesn't set up camp in this particular place. Now notice also that Mark does not record the incident with the um, people asking if they could follow Jesus, and Jesus saying that he doesn't have uh, you know, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but Jesus doesn't have a place to lay his head. As a matter of fact, when Mark, uh, I don't think Mark ever reports that part, but when Luke does, Luke does several chapters later. So let's look at the Luke account and see some similarities and differences again. Again, Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked, <coughs> they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever and left her. 
She got up at once and began to wait on them. So that's very similar, everything the same. At, sun, at sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people, shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. So again, more details about the way these demons are screaming out, and Jesus rebukes them. And so a really big night. This is a big deal. This is the first really big public healing, right? Jesus has healed many people before the Sermon on the Mount, here and there, going to the towns, and then he healed that leper, and then he healed the, the, the centurion's son, and now he's got all kinds of people coming to Simon's house. Again, though, Luke reports the same thing, that early in the morning at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place, so he went to pray. And the people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. So they wanted him to stay there. This is a good place to be. We want to set up a home camp. But he said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And so Jesus will not agree to stay. But again, notice that Luke does not mention the encounter with the people who wanted to follow Jesus. And again, Luke reports that several chapters later. So we have to deal with this issue here. Um, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, according to Matthew, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Um, we have to consider, is this a different incident? How do we, how do we reconcile these different accounts? And again, I want to remind you that um, the purpose of a, a, an account like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John they're all, each writer is, is telling the story for a reason, for the, to emphasize certain aspects of Jesus's character or certain aspects of the story. And so there's not a duty or a burden to be in chronological order. A lot of times when you talk about, uh, say you go on vacation, if you ask me about our vacation and you ask Tammy about our vacation and you ask the kids about our vacation, everybody's going to give a little bit different story. And it's partly based on the parts that they like the best. Like I might tell you about where we stayed and how many miles I made each day. And I would kind of do it in chronological order, but Tammy, she might tell you about the best restaurants and the best hotels in the order of those particular uh, facilities and not necessarily in chronological order, order at all. And the kids might report the, the three funnest things that they did or how funny it was that, you know, in the car watching a certain movie or something. The point is, is that Eyewitnesses' accounts, uh, especially when they're recording a story for emphasis, don't have to be chronologically the same. So that already gives us some freedom to understand why the storytellers would tell some events differently. The other thing is that it's possible that some events happen multiple times, and so um, they are in the right order. It's just that one time it's the one event, one time it's the other event. For example, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is almost word for word or very similar to the Sermon on the Plain. And there's several other discourses that are similar between the passages. And so Jesus probably taught the same material over and over. And it's also true that Jesus cast out demons many times over and over. But I kind of think that if you just had to sit back, the event of healing Peter's mother-in-law was probably a one-time thing. That was a pretty clear event that everybody knew and all of the writers seem to have it fairly early in the story of the stories of Jesus. And so it was sort of at the beginning of his ministry. But it's interesting to note that 
Matthew records the encounter with the leper who wanted to be healed. Uh, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Matthew reports that first, and Luke reports that after this incident. And so things get mixed up right away. The other thing that's interesting, though, is that Matthew is the only one who connects this night to the ride in the boat tomorrow. And so in the next part of Matthew <clears throat> chapter 8, we have the story about how Jesus and his disciples got into the boat, and then Jesus fell asleep, and then a storm came up, and they woke Jesus up and said, don't you care that we're drowning? And Jesus calmed the storm. And so that whole story in the book of Matthew is on purpose right after this long, long day. Think about it. Jesus had this big day, and he has all these people late into the night. He heals them all, and then the account of Luke tells us that he went out early in the morning to a solitary place, so he left Simon's house and went out to a solitary place and prayed, and, and the Lord led him through that prayer to conclude that it was time to leave. It was not a time to stay. And so when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake, uh, Matthew's recording for us the effect of Jesus' statement, we need to go to other towns. The other thing that's interesting is that Jesus is probably exhausted. And so when he's, uh, no wonder when he gets in the boat, he falls so hard asleep because he was up so late in such a stressful way and then also got up so early. And so I think these things are, are interesting and they all fit together for sure. But I just wanted to pick up that Jesus is not... Um, not going to stay in this place. People wanted him to stay. Where are you? We're looking for you. They want you to stay here. And Jesus says, no, I'm on the move. And so the rest of this story today, the next few verses, occurs between the time that Jesus is leaving Peter's house and going to the boat. And so he's going down to leave. He's going to get on the boat. And so that's when we come to the next part of the text, and that's two followers say no. And I put the followers in quotes to indicate that they aren't really followers. They are would-be followers. They want to be followers, but they are not yet. They have not decided to get on board with Jesus all the way. And uh, no pun intended about getting on board. And so, <clears throat> again, uh, the four points of a message so far is there's two kinds of healings, the intimate friend and the strangers, the easy and the complex, the the not so severe and the very severe case of demon possession. And this fulfills the scripture, and that scripture points to the Messiah, that Jesus is the one through whom salvation will come. He's the one that it matters most about because he's the one who rescues each individual soul from hell if we would trust in him. And this Jesus gives an order, and that order is to go on the boat to get on to the other side, to get away from where we're at. So we're leaving town. We're getting out of Dodge. And so now we encounter two followers who say no. So then a teacher of the law, verse 19, came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So again, if we pick up the story, this is Jesus leave, has already left Peter's house and is traveling to the boat, or he's back. he's at the boat, maybe he's at the shoreline, somewhere in there. I would imagine maybe the boat's within sight, or maybe they're at the waterfront. And the teacher of the law comes to him and says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, this teacher of the law, that's an important, he's an official. He's a student. He's a professional student. He's a professional teacher. He's in the educational pieces of the culture. He's not a, a, 
uh, uninformed. He can recognize who Jesus is. And he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus, in his wisdom, says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And I wonder if you can almost hear the fatigue in Jesus' voice. I almost wonder if he said, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. He is so tired. But Jesus replies that these, this, there is not a place for you. If you follow me, it will be to a placeless destination. There will not be a home. And then another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Now, in the account that Luke gives of these encounters with these would-be disciples, there are actually three of them in Luke's account, and the second and third one are quite similar. The first one says, Lord, let me go first and bury my father, and the third one in Luke's account says, uh, let me go say goodbye to my family. And so it's a little less severe, but uh, they're both similar, and again, they both are followers, but they, are, uh, they decide not to follow us, we assume, from the storyline. The other thing is that um, it appears, and especially from Luke's account, that Jesus actually invited this man to follow him. The first one said, I want to come, I want to come. And this one, Jesus invites him to come. And so he says, let me go first and bury my father. And then Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, Jesus is not saying that you're supposed to be disrespectful of a dead body or that it wouldn't be right to take care of your parents or anything like that. And what this man was asking to do was, you know, his father hadn't died that day and needed to be cleaned up. No, what this was was a, a, an aging parent, and the man said, I, want, I will follow you, but not until I've dealt with my and taken care of my parents. I have a, a relationship that I need to fulfill. And there's a lot of cultural and social pressure on sons to do a good job of taking care of their parents all the way to the end. And so he was uh, being pressured in his own heart to be, a, to have the reputation of being a good son and to actually be a good son. But Jesus says, no can do. He says, you follow me and you let the bed bury, dead bury their own dead. In other words, if your father is not on board with me enough to recognize that I am more important than he is, then he is spiritually dead. And if he's spiritually dead, let the spiritually dead bury their own spiritual dead. In other words, you need to understand, it's not that it's wrong to bury your father. It's, the problem is, is it's wrong to hold that as a higher call in your life than my call to you. And if I say to you, get in this boat with me, and you don't come with me, then you are as if you are the dead burying the dead. You are spiritually dead as well. You see, the boat is, is wedged up against the shore, and it's big enough for a group of guys, but it's still small enough to climb into and and totter back and forth. And, and this teacher of this law, of the law, and this other man are looking at the boat, and apparently they decide not to get in. So let's look at these two followers that say no. First of all, one of them is eager to come on his own, and the other one was invited by Jesus. But in both cases, whether they were self-motivated or Jesus-motivated, they both, when it came right down to it, did not decide to follow Jesus. And the other one was, uh, the other comparison is that the first one was faced with the cost of a place. In other words, Jesus said, I don't have a place to put my head. I don't have a resting place. I don't have a home. 
And this first man had to deal with that implication. And he weighed it all out and decided not to. I think somehow that maybe this man was expecting that Jesus would would let him follow, but at that town of Capernaum, where uh, in, in that town where all the people were coming, was comfortable there, was an ideal situation, was the right location. And come, let's make a, a place for us. And and I also kind of wonder, you know, God had promised as a great blessing, and it is a blessing to Abraham that he, he gave Abraham and his descendants a land. And, and their connection to the land was really significant. It was a real blessing to have land and a place and to look at, no matter where your eyes could see that that's where you go. And, and, and Abraham even purchased some of the land to bury his wife, Sarah. And so there's a, there is something about our human nature that we do want to have a home. We want to have a place that's familiar. We want that to be our backyard, our tree, our, our neighborhood, our, our neck of the woods. And, and there, that is a strong draw, and it's comfortable, and it's, it's a place that we recognize. But again, it's not that that is bad, nor is it that God never gives us that blessing. It's just that when we want that place, when we want our home, when we want our personal security, the ideals that we have made for ourselves, when we want what we are doing is we're loving this world. We're loving this present time and its characteristics more than we're loving Jesus. And and Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you got to get in that boat. That boat is going someplace, and I'm going someplace. And to get in that boat, this man would have, he, he would not know where he was going. Jesus is going to other places, and it's not clearly defined. And the boat is tottery, and boats are uncomfortable, and, and, and you can get seasick and everything else. And this man looked at the boat. He looked at Jesus. He, looked, he weighed it all out and said, no. I'm not willing to pay that price. And that's exactly the tragedy. And so he did not get in the boat because he, he couldn't pay the cost of losing a place. Then the uh, second man was invited by Jesus, but he says, first let me go and bury my father. Let me do what is right. Some implications could be maybe he wanted to wait till his father's inheritance would be there. So maybe there was an economic component. But there was certainly the relational component, the word, the, you know, a parent can make you feel guilty for not helping them enough as much as they want to be helped. Or a parent can make you feel guilty because you're not measuring up to all of their expectations. Or maybe the society, maybe your sisters and brothers or your cousins is, oh, you know, look at old, you know, Joe over there. He never takes care of his parents. He just took off running after that Jesus guy. And so there was a, a social shame, a social pressure of not doing what your duty was. And here this man was, he wanted to follow Jesus, but only, well, actually not as much as he wanted to have the approval of his family and friends, his peers, his social expectations. He wanted to meet those expectations. And again, I I would want to say that Jesus is an anti-parent as a matter of fact, the Bible tells us to honor our mother and father. Jesus even teaches that we're supposed to honor mother and father, and to, to come up with some other mechanism to get around it is actually to break the law of God. And so you can't even give money to God instead of to your parents in order to love them. You know, that, that, so, God, so Jesus is all about honoring mother and father, and he just showed how you could honor. He, he just honored um, Peter's mother-in-law and healed her. And so the point is Jesus is not anti-relationship, but... 
he is also anti-competitor in the sense that Jesus will not share his lordship in your life. You have to love him more than anyone else. And this man needed to come to grips with the fact that this Jesus, one who the demons knew who he was, the ones that he told them not to say who he was, the one who healed all night long and went out to pray, this Jesus is the one who bears our uh, diseases. He carries our illness. In other words, he is the Messiah of God. He is the single most important person in all of history. And if he says, jump, you say, how high? And if he says, get in this boat with me, you get in the boat with him no matter who's left on shore because of who he is. He's got to have top-notch authority. And it's not that it would have been forever and they could have come back to the other side. It's but there's something symbolic in this decision, and it always it always points right at the heart. Do you love Jesus more than these? And and that's really the question. Are we going to give Jesus our all, our whole heart, or not? And so this man would not give up the reputation that he would lose by, by not uh, staking around until his dad died and whatever else that would be. And so... He failed to spend the cost of relationships. So we have these two kinds of healings, a scripture fulfilled. We know who Jesus is from these healing experiences. He is the one who will save your soul from hell. He's God himself. And that person gives an order. And that order is, let's go. We're going to go to the other side of the lake. Let's go. And you have to decide. Is your place more important than him? Is your reputation and your friendships and the approval of other people, is that more important than him? Are you going to get into that boat? And so that's really my fifth question today. Will you get into the boat? You know, I don't know what kind of things God's put in front of you right now. What kinds of questions? You know, many a times uh, God has called people to leave their home and their family to go serve him overseas or or in another place. And so that's sometimes what we have to do. We have to really do what these two guys didn't want to do. That's leave our place and leave our families and and not be able to bury them. And how many servants of God have, have not been home when their loved ones were ill or sick? That's very possible. Maybe, maybe part of what makes the boat so scary is you don't know where Jesus is going. You're getting in this rickety thing and as soon as you cast off from shore, there's no turning back. You can't swim back. And it's uncomfortable, maybe cold and damp. But for sure, you're not in charge of where it's going. And the wind's going to blow. You know, I think you could even argue that these guys, some people might say that they made the right decision. Because that same night, that same day, a storm comes up. And the storm is so severe that they thought they'd lose their lives. And so if anybody was aware of that on the shore, if these two guys looked at us and I wonder if they looked at each other and said, boy, I sure am glad I didn't go on that boat ride. We'd be all dead right now. You know, and it would have looked that way. It, that day was fraught with suffering and terrors. But I'll tell you something else. Those guys weren't there when Jesus stood up in the boat and said, peace be still. And it became as calm as glass. You see, because they chose their temporal comforts, their temporal desires more than him, they missed out on seeing God do what only God can do. And that's calm the storm. 
And those other disciples that were in the boat never, ever forgot that day. And Jesus says to them, oh, you have little faith. We're going to study that next time we go through the, this part of Matthew. But, you know, that whole encounter with this is God telling the winds and waves to obey him. And so the question I have for you today, um, you know, and part of it's in our life right now, you know, with David uh, suffering and having to decide what to do with his eye surgery and stuff, and it's painful and sounds horrible and it's uncomfortable. And, you know, minor surgery is what you call it when somebody else gets surgery, not when you get it. <clears throat> but you know what? God is asking David to get into the boat and to trust him. And a lot of times God is asking you to do that. You're afraid. You don't know what's going to happen and you don't want to. I don't want to change. I don't want to change it out of my comfort place. I don't want to leave my friends behind. I don't want to lose my status. I don't want to lose. And Jesus says, get in the boat. You need to get in the boat with me. I'm going to take care of you. I'm the one in charge. And uh, move over because I'm going to take a long nap right now. Well, I just hope that that's encouraging to you. And may you um, be willing to get in the boat with Jesus. Father in heaven, I, I know that there's a lot of parts of this that uh, could be clearer. But I just pray that you will be especially uh, good to me as I try to teach this to our church tomorrow. That uh, as I think about tonight and tomorrow, that um, you'll bring even more clear thoughts to me and better illustrations. And I just thank you so much for your word. And thank you for the what this has meant to me. I, I've been rebuked many times this week about whether or not I'd get into the boat with Jesus. And and I um, I need to do it. I, I, I need to get in your boat, Jesus. Thank you for giving me that much love that you would change my heart so that I would. And I'll, I'll worship you forever in your name. Amen. <laughs>